This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? Embrace the bosom of an adulteress. Your father's commandments is a lamp and your mother's teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman and from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. House and wealth are inherited from the fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a woman, the way of a man with a virgin. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Her husband praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We're uh, in a series within a series uh, here this morning. We've been going through Proverbs, searching out, seeking for, desiring to have wisdom. And this morning... I begin uh, a mini-series that will probably not go consecutive weeks in a row, although I think next week we'll be on the same topic. But a mini-series as we continue to walk through Proverbs called Beauty, Marriage, and Sex. And of course, uh, this is part one. I picked that order for our mini-series for a reason. Um, that although uh, beauty and marriage and sex are perspectives on the whole, they do flow in this logical manner from a biblical uh, perspective. Beauty, find someone beautiful, but first learn God's standard for beauty. Marriage, commit yourself to them through thick and thin until death parts you. Sex, have an amazing, toe-curling, mind-blowing soul-satisfying sex life that is ever-increasing. I did not name it what the world I grew up in would want to name it, beauty, sex, and marriage. Fall in love, fall in love with someone beautiful, have sex, and if it helps you out, get married. I did not name it uh, what the world today, the world that a lot of our campus outreach students are growing up in, I did not uh, name it sex, beauty, and marriage. Have sex with anyone you want, protected sex. And if you find someone beautiful, and if they're willing to marry you, go ahead. I want you to know that the the men, particularly of the campus outreach students, that you're my target audience this morning. That I realized recently I have two sermons left with you here. And I thought about from the book of Proverbs, the greatest gift I could give you, the most liberating gift I could give you, the most pleasurable gift I could give you. 
the most countercultural gift I could give you, the most counterintuitive gift I could give you, the most church culture counter gift I could give you. A series on beauty, marriage, and sex. I want to teach you this morning to begin to study the scriptures for yourself on how to pick a wife. I want to teach you what to look for in a woman. Remember the original audience, the rest of us listening in this morning. From what we can tell, the book of Proverbs was a manual for a boys' school. It was a manual for teaching wisdom to young men. So the preponderances of references are to men, young men, their wives, and not the opposite. But don't be offended by this. If you were to come across a Boy Scouts manual at a campground, you wouldn't be offended because it doesn't give the Girl Scouts perspective. You would also not be offended because it doesn't tell you how to get a black belt in karate. You would read it for what it was intended and what it is worth. And then in community, uh, you would personally reflect and talk about how it might more directly apply to your life. Listen to what one commentator writes, thinking about the original audience, these uh, boys in puberty, these boys just coming out of puberty. He says this, when discussing the principles in the book on beauty, marriage, and sex, if judged by sheer quantity of teaching, this is the most important point that the book makes. Your understanding of beauty, marriage, and sex can make or break your entire life. Whether or not you are willing to obey and trust God in this area has massive ramifications. So if you're not a young man this morning, is this a waste of your time? Beyond how good it is for us to be selfless and humble and present so that someone else can have a gift given to them, beyond that, single women, many of the principles in this sermon are directly applicable to you and what you should look for in a spouse. At the same time, it would be wise of you, single women, to prayerfully and humbly and dependently work towards becoming the kind of woman a wise young man will marry. Becoming the kind of woman that the book of Proverbs tells young men to look for. Men, if you're already married, and let's say that you're a dad, married or not, or one day you might be a dad, this is a huge topic in parenting. Our children are enslaved by the deceptions of the devil at an early age on this topic. Or in this sermon, you may see mistakes that, that, that you and I have made about beauty, marriage, and sex, and we might understand why those mistakes are still hurting us, why they're still causing pain in our lives. Uh, more importantly, we might understand why we are causing pain in our wives' lives. We may need to repent this morning for getting the order wrong. I know I have to. We may, may need to repent this morning for, for choosing a wife based on the world's standard of beauty instead of God's. We may need to repent for continuing to demand a certain type of beauty in our spouse that has dehumanized her. We may need to repent for missing the opportunity to be used by God to make our wives more beautiful today than they were yesterday and certainly more beautiful today than when they were technically the wife of our youth. Married women, again, if you're a mom, married or not, or one day might be a mom, listen to this. This can make or break your son. Do you see in chapter six, 
verse 23. It's a dad's commands and a mother's teaching that will lead to abundant life in a young son, particularly in the area of being protected from the forbidden woman. The forbidden woman will promise freedom and pleasure and life, but she will bring slavery and sadness and death. And it is the teaching of the mom that protects the son from such things. So if for no other reason than you're a mom or you might be a mom one day, learn this morning from the book of Proverbs. Now, before we get started, we're not even started yet. A few notes on who I am. Ironically, I just recently realized, I'm not gonna tell you how recently, but Maddie said happy anniversary to me when she sat down next to me at church and I remembered again that this is my anniversary. Trisha and I have been married for 12 years. I, I realized it before then because it's in my notes. I didn't magically print them on my notes. Here, I know it before. What I'm about to teach you, I increasingly believe to be true and beautiful and liberating and loving. Bar none, bar none, picking Trisha Tucker to marry has been the best decision of my entire life, bar none. At the same time, the grace of God evident to me in that selection and what he has done in our marriage since then has been overwhelming. It's caused me, Trisha has caused me to believe God loves me more than anything else in my entire life. At the same time, I've only been married 12 years. And that while because of school and study and, and my own past, my understanding of these topics does go beyond 12 years, my experience of these topics is only 12 years old. And so I was thinking about that this, this week. I've basically received my middle school diploma on this. And my goal, a goal that I will work hard towards, that I'm committing myself to today, that I will do whatever homework necessary, my goal is to have a PhD in this one day. If I make mistakes, I've got next week to clean it up. Please be patient and graceful with me. First, we'll talk about an inexplicable future. Second, we'll talk about the present search. Third, we'll talk about the redemption from the past, how to pick an excellent wife. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, I confess to you significant idolatry in my life as it relates to preaching, that I have, taking two weeks off, I've been exposed yet again in my anxieties about the pulpit, that I get way too much identity out of this place, and that I was so relaxed and free for two weeks, and now I'm knotted up. God, would you forgive me? I do not want to have my identity in this place. I want it in you, Jesus Christ, and from you, I want to serve others with the gifts you've given me. Please forgive me. I confess this morning that I have gotten this out of order, that I am a man who committed sex before he got married. And I thank you in advance for your grace and what it has meant to me that you have redeemed me and Trisha, that you have forgiven us, that you have made us new, that you have caused us to worship you by how good you have been to us. I, I thank you and I come before you very humbly right now. I think that what I'm about to preach might be the most counter message I could possibly preach. The world has enslaved us to such foolishness and Satan is so pleased to see us value beauty too much and undervalue sex 
so much. Would you please this morning give us your spirit? Would you teach us? Would you apply this to hearts and lives? Would you take what might be highly theoretical for some and bury it deep into their soul? Would you cause all of us to repent where we need to repent? Would you take each of us to the table where Christ, we will receive you and you alone for identity, for our justification, for our hope. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. An inexplicable future. Look at verses, uh, chapter five, verses 15 through 20. Verses one through 14 in chapter five, the first of three warnings regarding the forbidden woman. So the context for 15 through 20 is the son being told to avoid the forbidden woman. Chapters five, six, and seven, over and over and over, repeating that the son needs to avoid having sex with the forbidden woman, the prostitute, the adulteress, the woman who is his neighbor. But in verse 15, the sage begins to describe how a marriage, particularly sex, should be in terms that are frankly quite erotic and and almost too hot to handle even this morning. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing waters from your own well. We know from the ancient Near East context, we know from what's happening in chapter five, we know from Hebrew poetry, we know from the Song of Songs and other places in scripture that the cistern and the well are images for female sexuality. That you have to enter into the cistern. You have to go down into the well in order to get the water. It's an obvious image of female sexuality. And the sage is telling the boys, avoid the forbidden woman, but in time, enjoy and drink in the flowing water from your own well, the wife that is yours. And then verses 16 and 18 give images and deal with male sexuality. Verse 16, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the street, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. It's the same word for forbidden woman is translated there, strangers. Again, the imagery is so obvious. A spring, not water you go down into to get. It's water that that spurts out and is emitted. It's an obvious image for male sexuality. And with this in mind, listen to this. Don't think about it too long, but but listen to this. I don't wanna lose you for the rest of the sermon. Verse 18 is a dad's prayer for his son. It is a sage's prayer for his pupil. Listen to this. Let, it's a prayer request. It literally means let it come to pass that your fountain be blessed. This is not about progeny. Psalm 127, that was yesterday in CBR. Yes, there is the blessing on the man's sexuality for him to have lots of children. This is not about progeny. This is about pleasure. May God bless your fountain. May he bless your, I don't know what to say next. (laughs) And let it come to pass that you rejoice in, be glad about, Get pleasure from the wife of your youth. It's worship language. Keep going, verse 19. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. No idea what that means. I'll look it up for next week. Let her breasts fill you. Literally satisfy you. Be intoxicated. Excuse me, let her breasts, see I'm I'm flustered. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Again, another word for worship. Be intoxicated always with her love. The word love there is ahaba, which is especially sexual love. It's like ahaba. And be, <laughs> be 
intoxicated at all times, always, not just on your honeymoon, not just before the first kid, not just before retirement, all times, always intoxicated by her sexuality. Daydream about it. Think about it. Look forward to it. Go astray in it. Get lost in it. Be exhilarated by it. Most literally, intoxicated means what it says. Be staggering drunk, inebriated in love. One commentator says this, love and lovemaking make one lightheaded, similar to the effects of drinking wine. Thank you, Captain Obvious. The sage and the father is giving these young men in puberty and right after it an incredibly positive view of sexuality. There is a bare-faced rejoicing in, even a praying for sexual pleasure. There isn't the tiniest bit of prudishness in this text at all. The sage is warning the boys over and over the dangers of sex with anyone not their wife, but saying in 15 through 20 that the best defense against the forbidden woman is a strong, proactive, God-blessed sexual relationship with their wife to look forward to and to look for this woman, to look for this cistern, to look for this well. Go down uh, to chapter 30, uh, verses uh, 18 and 19. Between chapter five and chapter 30, interwoven in those 25 chapters through the various wisdom topics of the book will be verses about how to find a good wife and how to avoid a certain kind of woman. And so as you recall from what we've learned so far in the book of Proverbs, that the book of Proverbs is to be read from the beginning to the end and you never take just one verse out on a topic. You have to study it compared to all the other verses on the topic and how it intertwines with the other verses on other wisdom topics. And in a moment, we're going to talk about the kind of woman you look for to have this smoking hot sex life with. But for now, after 25 chapters about planning and fields and corn and whatever all else, just in case the boys have fallen asleep, he says this, chapter 30, verse 18, three things are too wonderful for me. For I do not understand. It's a literary device. He, he's, he's saying, he's talking about wonder. He said, there are three things. No, four. There are four things that I don't understand. And the first three in this literary device are going to be compared to the fourth. And the fourth is the climax of the poem. All three of these things that he doesn't understand that are too wonderful, they all describe the motion of one thing on top of another. They all are images of, being, uh, of one being coming into or penetrating into the realm of another. Uh, they're all images of one being being supported by another. It's so fascinating. Again, I'm not gonna say much more about it. Verse 19, the way of the eagle in the sky, the mystery of how an eagle glides across the sky the way of a serpent on a rock, the mystery of how a snake slithers across the rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, the mystery of how a ship cuts across the sea and is supported by the sea and is rocked to and fro by the high sea. And then the climax, the way of a man with a virgin. It's talking about both the woman who is ripe for sexual intercourse due to her age and the woman who you take her virginity from for the rest of your life. The sage is saying this, considering all the beauties of creation and nature, the climax, the most beautiful, the most wonderful is simply this. It's the act of married human sex. The point is the inexplicable future. That means unable to be explained. I love the word inexplicable. You probably don't have love affairs with words like I do. I personally love this one. 
It's from a Latin word that literally means that which cannot be unfolded. Think about it. For the first time in the book, something is too wonderful, too surpassing, too extraordinary, too marvelous. For the first time in the book, something is beyond the sage's understanding. For the first time in the book, the sage for 30 chapters has been putting together topics about which he understood, topics about which they were not too wonderful for him. And now he says mere words, mere poems, mere images are not enough. They cannot do justice. He says the greatest artists, the greatest lyricists, the greatest philosophers, the greatest theologians of all times will not be able to adequately explain the gift of married sex to you. Now, as you can imagine, the boys are intrigued. They're looking forward to this. They're thinking about it. It's on the front of their minds. They would like to hear more about it. Throughout the book of Proverbs, not only in 5 through 30 do you get pictures of what um, a good wife is and pictures of what a bad choice in picking a wife would be, but you also, the, 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 um, the, the young boys are told to go and find this, to, to put on a search, to try and find this amazing woman. For example, if I put 1822 and 1914 together, again, remember they're pearls and we're supposed to connect them in the book of Proverbs. It says, while house and wealth are inherited from fathers, he who finds a prudent or a wise wife obtains favor from the Lord. Now, the boys are sent on the present search. They're told of an inexplicable future, and they're sent on their way in the present search. Let's do some thinking. How to find a spouse by the world's point of view. What to look for in a wife, particularly if you want that smoking hot sex life. What to look for. Uh, researchers, uh, evolutionary biologists have asked this question of a thousand plus men within the last couple of years. It's one of the articles I read online this week. And they asked them, what do you factor in when searching for a wife? Listen to what the world says. Figure, that means shape. Face, uh, studies have shown uh, how beauty has become more about body type than the face since the prolifer- proliferation of pornography. Historically, a man would have said face and then figure, but now it's just figure and then face. Third would be career. Fourth would be personality. And of course, these are in diminishing value. You know, if you get number one and two, who really cares about the rest, right? Uh, career would be nice, make a little extra money. Personality, I'd like to enjoy being around them. And then religion counts. Fifth. Number five, religion. Character. We'll do that on number five. This is the church's variation of that same list. Not the Bibles, the churches. What 99% of the believing men in this room did and are doing, I'm your pastor, I'm one of you, I've been discipling you. Figure, face, are they a Christian? See how mature that is? Personality and temperament, And then career, do they have a purpose in life? If you get all the way down to career, I mean, that's amazing. Listen to what Tim Keller said. Single men walk into a room. Single Christian men walk into a room. They lop off 80% of the women from their list as a future spouse based on looks or whatever their type is. They then try to be friends with the 80% if that helps them get to the 20%. They try to get to know the 20% to see about these other aspects, career, personality, and then character. Of the 20% they eliminate, 80% 
or I'm sorry, of the 20% that stay, 80% are eliminated for some reason like this. They're too shallow. Do you get that irony? The women are too shallow. The guys don't even consider 80% of the room. And one of the 20% is too shallow and just not quite deep enough. And listen to this. All the while, they look past women that Proverbs says would be a great selection, a wonderful spouse, someone they could have toe-curling, soul-satisfying sex with. They're looking at and critiquing and further establishing their standard of beauty. So while they're not marrying what the book of Proverbs recommends that you marry, because they're horny, they oogle at every woman that walks by, every woman that they see too much of, whether it's in reality or in fantasy or electronically. And so their standard increases. It's never ending. So let's turn to Proverbs 31. While our culture has ideas on how to pick a wife and the church has slightly altered those ideas, Proverbs is very clear on what to look for in a wife or a spouse. Chapter 31, verse 10. An excellent wife who can find. So we're at that place, how to find this spouse that you can do chapter five and chapter 30 with, uh, verses I would commit to memory if I were you. She is far more precious. She's worth far more than jewels. Now think about this. The next 19 verses should read something like this. According to how we live our lives, men and women, according to what our culture has taught us, according to what 99% of us in this room did and are doing, it should read something like this. An excellent wife who can find, an excellent wife who you can have smoking hot sex with, should have the following figure and face. She should be tall and skinny and have perfect complexion. No bushy eyebrows, no unibrows whatsoever. Perfect smelling breath, perfect body parts at all times. A continual tan without mole and without any chance of skin cancer. There should be in her the right amount of hair in all the right places, massive breasts that will never sag, a shapely and full bottom with no dimples that does not even move when running, a supernatural power to keep this up for 50 plus years. It should say, it should be like 19 straight verses of that. And then the 18th verse should read something like this. She should do everything she possibly can to become this kind of woman. She should cover up her natural reality with cosmetics and surgeries and jewelry and clothing products. She should look to make her shape look like whatever she wants or whatever she wants had. She should always ask, what flatters my figure? She should always say, how do I hide those parts of me that I'm ashamed of? She should say, how can I look like someone I am not? And then the 19th verse should say this. Oh yeah, she needs to be a believer. And it would be nice if she was a mature one and not a shallow one. (laughs) What does it say about the excellent wife? We'll consider these details, Lord willing, further next week. 17 verses that have nothing to do with appearance, nothing to do with looks, nothing to do with beauty, not one mention of figure, not even a face. Listen to the, the, the woman that is excellent, that is to be married, that is to be the, the cistern and the well that are supposed to intoxicate you. She's the epitome of diligence. She is not lazy. She's a capable businesswoman. She can trade and purchase and cultivate land. She gets up early and provides food 
and clothes for her family. She teaches her children about life and wisdom and godliness. She's the epitome of wisdom and planning. She laughs at the future and she laughs at what would make most anxious because she plans ahead. She's so good at building and managing a house. Her husband is free to work for the good of the community. Her husband's free to be in the gate. He's free to go to that place where the leaders of the community gather and discuss justice in the community's future. On top of all of this, she is concerned with the plight of the poor. She is generous to the needy. 17 verses of this. Nothing about physical beauty. This is the woman, when you look at the Proverbs as a whole, that you can enjoy mind-blowing, toe-curling, smoking hot, transcendent, metaphysical, poetry, can't describe it, sex. You say, oh, well, evidently I need to consider this to be a little more important in my selection of a spouse. But I am sure that something about looks or appearance or beauty is next. It has to be. It has to say something about physical beauty because it's all I think about. Look back at the worship folder and consider the last three verses of the whole book of Proverbs. 29. Her husband praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. I'll show you next week when we talk about the dehumanization of the way our world understands beauty, that only 4% of all women can get within the range of the standard of beauty for 1,000 men, 4%. But the book of Proverbs says that there are many women who would make an excellent spouse if you understand beauty the way God defines it and if you understand love the way he says it should be. Verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Charm could mean one of two things. It's it's used to talk about a personality that is deceptive and it hides uh, an ugly interior. But it can also, and and it's just as often translated in the Old Testament as adornment. It means to adorn or to beautify. To adorn yourself is deceitful. The woman who is fake, either by her personality or fake physically, is deceptive, false, and living a lie. Talk more about that next week. And beauty is vain. It's the word that means, it's habel. It's in Ecclesiastes like 40 times. It's, in Ecclesiastes, it's saying, everything is meaningless except for being related to God and doing the chores he gave you to do. Nothing else is worth your life. Nothing else will justify your existence. And this is what it says. When searching for a spouse, an excellent wife, beauty is meaningless. He says, but this is what is valuable. Chapter 31, verse 10, this is what is precious. This is what is worth something. A woman who fears the Lord, remember the foundation of wisdom, chapter one, is to be praised. I didn't put 31 in your worship folder, but I'll read it. Listen, give her the fruit of her hands, and this is the fruit of her hands. Let her works praise her in the gates. You see that, the word praise? Three times In the last three verses, the last three verses about an excellent wife, the last three verses for the entire book says, praise this, boast in this, notice this. The word can mean even look at this, study this, oogle at this, find this. A woman whose life is full of good deeds, 
Because she fears the Lord, because the steadfast love and faithfulness of God has been massaged into her heart. Chapter three, previous sermon. Could God be more clear about how he designed things to be? Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Listen, listen to some startling statements and I, I wanna give you a challenge. I was not gonna preach next week. Uh, I was gonna, at Ruwa's and I was gonna go on vacation. I'm gonna go on vacation a day later. I'm giving you an honest challenge to try and, and, and take your scriptures and open them up and prove to me in your scriptures that you should have looks on your list as you find a spouse. You won't find it. Just go ahead and tell you, but go ahead, try to take my challenge. Listen to these statements. When looking for a wife, a wife to have smoking hot sex with, do not consider beauty. It is vain and fleeting and meaningless. Your sex life will diminish along with the inevitable reality that her physical beauty and shape will diminish. When trying to attract a husband, a husband to have cistern flowing sex with, to be drunk in love with, it is vain, fleeting, and meaningless to try and attract one through looks. You will be objectified and made into a trophy and one day discarded either through a divorce or a despising lack of attention. Further, to the extent, this is the book of Proverbs, to the extent that you consider looks when choosing a wife or to the extent that you try to attract a husband based on charm and beauty, you are a fool. We'll look next week at the reality that you are pulling potentially a pig into your lap. This week, find any one verse that says that looks maybe shouldn't be at the top, but it should be on the list. You won't find it. You won't find it. You won't find it. The Bible can't be more clear. And I know what some of you married men are saying. I know you're saying, no, no, I'm totally attracted to my spouse. I totally think she's beautiful. And in fact, the Song of Solomon, in the Song of Solomon, Solomon tells his wife over and over, you're the most beautiful among women. You're a lily among brambles. You are to be valued in this way. I see your legs and I see your breasts and I see all that is in you, like your cistern and your well and everything else. And you are so beautiful. And he's not talking about character When picking a wife, looks do not matter. Once God gives his spirit to your marriage, your wife will become the most beautiful and attractive and wonderful and seductive thing that there is. In the Song of Solomon, the woman will say over and over through the book, do not look at me, do not gaze upon me, do not um, um, devalue me because these things about myself that are not culturally beautiful. She, she had to work in the vineyard so she was tanned and she had muscles and her hands were calloused. And in that culture, that was very taboo. And in chapter one, she says, don't look at me. I don't feel like I measure up. And that is when her husband says, I don't care what culture says about you. You're the most beautiful among women. And until the day you die, you are my standard of beauty and I will increase in love and drunkenness and pleasure with you. I'm telling you, after 12 years, whatever was the honeymoon, it was like a Big Mac. After middle school, poems can't describe it. My wife, 
was more culturally beautiful back then than she is now. But at the beach yesterday, I could not take my eyes off of her. And I wanted every drop of her because God has given her to me as what is beautiful. Now I realize that you're hesitant and I realize that this is painful. And we'll talk about our hesitancies and our pain next week. But I believe that the reason that we're resisting this and the reason that it's painful is because we've bought the lie of the world and, that, and we have believed that our identity is tied to our outward appearance. We believe that our identity is tied to our physique and shape and our parts and their various sizes and to our cultural attractiveness. From a very early age, we have learned that we're valuable and we have worth and we have identity and we receive glory from physical appearance or beauty. That if, if we're beautiful or if we can merge into a relationship with someone who is beautiful, then we'll have identity and value and justification for living. And the only way to be free from this identity foundation and this ongoing identity crisis that is going in the wrong direction is to receive our identity and our approval and our worth and our value and our justification for being alive from the Father through the Son in the gospel. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter five. I do not accept praise, glory, honor, approval. I do not accept praise from men. He says, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the approval that comes from the only God? And Jesus is saying that we must repent from finding our identity in the idols of this life, and we must believe that we have all the identity we need in Jesus, that we are utterly beautiful because of the cross and the gospel that we are completely defined by him as valuable and precious and beautiful, not on the outside, which goes away, but on the inside, which lasts forever. And to the extent that we realize that Jesus put on skin, and to the extent that we realize that he looked through the cross at us, he looked at our guilt, he looked at our shame, he looked at my sexual sin, he looked at me sitting in my sloth and in my filth, he looked through the cross and through the sufferings, and he says, I want to get through this to you to make you beautiful because you're worth it to me. You're that valuable to me. You're that beautiful to me. I want eternity with you. Only that can take my identity and put it on a solid rock foundation where looks won't matter. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do look forward to next week and I do look forward to speaking more about this redemption from the past. I am excited about being free from the slavery of Satan and the world and the flesh. God, I pray that you would break down our hesitations and our, resist and our resistance. I pray for some of us um, who are culturally beautiful that we have now learned today that our identity is being shattered underneath us. I pray that you would found us up on the identity that is ours in the gospel. And Lord, there are some today who are not, including uh, myself, who are not culturally beautiful. And this is painful to hear that yes, the world does evaluate us based on looks. Would you found us up? in the reality that we are beautiful in your sight, that we will spend forever being doted upon by you, that we will forever have mercies new every morning, that in fact, we are not disqualified for marriage and great sex by our looks, but in fact, qualified in the gospel. In your name we pray.